We're in Genesis 6 this morning. We'll be parked there for the duration. You can turn there if you've got a Bible and like to. And kind of a disclaimer, even as we start, this is a great passage. And this morning will be sort of long on almost Bible study, kind of the mechanics, and a little short on application. So this may come across as a little rough. I apologize for that. But there's, uh, there's a lot of questions on the front end of Genesis chapter 6. And so we'll actually take a good deal of time simply to try and answer some questions, what the text says and what it means. And thinking, too, just along the lines of the Sunday school classes we've been having on understanding and applying the Scriptures, this is a good text with that in mind because there's a lot here to try to come to grips with just as far as understanding. So we'll be in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 7. We'll add on verses 11 and 12 for good measure. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Skipping down to verses 11 and 12, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. We're going to start with verses 1 through 4 here and try and answer some questions. Who or what are the sons of God and the daughters of men? Maybe when you read this, it just makes sense right away. And maybe it doesn't. And in part, if it doesn't, it's because of these verses identifying who or what we're really talking about. Who or what are the sons of God and the daughters of men? That's one thing. The second is, who or what are the Nephilim and the mighty men or the men of renown, the men, the famous men, men with a name that is known? Who or what are they? And then what does this phrase about 120 years mean? Okay, so we're going to look at these three things in order. This does not, however you come out in the end on looking at these phrases or identifying, this doesn't change the application at the end of the passage, but it certainly has something to do with understanding both in Genesis 6 and as you'll see later, also for some New Testament passages as well. So the first, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? Who or what are these? There's a few options, and by the way, if you read commentators, I'm kind of narrowing this down to three, kind of the three primary ones, though you will find variations on the theme if you do much reading. The first option for the sons of God and the daughters of men is that the sons of God are the sons of Seth. They're the godly descendants out of the godly line, and if that's the case, then the daughters of men are probably to be seen as the female descendants of Cain. Another option is that the sons of God and the daughters of men are just men and women, just simply men and women. And then the last is that the sons of God are angels and the daughters of men are 
are a female, human females. If the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, this makes sense because we've just read some genealogies. Do you guys remember the end of chapter 4 was Cain's line? Chapter 5 was Seth's line. So we've seen that God's showing us these parallel lines, if you will, one godly and one ungodly. So here, maybe the sons of God is a positive way of describing the sons of Seth. That would kind of make sense within the context. If they are the sons of Seth, then the daughters of of men would probably be understood as meaning the descendants, female descendants of Cain. And so what you'd have here, especially for the Jewish audience, remember Jews were the first people to hear this story. So for them, if they heard this, this would probably be all negative because it would mean that the godly has intermarried with the ungodly. Or for Jews, it would mean Jewish people in covenant with God had intermarried with Gentiles. This would be a big no-no. This would be seen as a very negative thing. John Salehammer, who is one of my uh, favorite commentators, especially on the book of Genesis, he doesn't go with the sons of Seth. He thinks that the beginning of chapter 6 is actually the conclusion to chapter 5. So it doesn't start a new section. It actually closes up the genealogy. So for Salehammer, the sons of God, this goes back to Genesis 5.1. You remember in Genesis 5.1 when they start the genealogy of Adam that will include the promised line from Seth, it shows basically that Adam was God's son. You remember that Adam traces his origin as far as a genealogy to God himself. So Salehammer says, if we understand it this way, the sons of God are just men. Because man traces his, the sex man traces his origin to God as his father. But Eve, the original woman, came from Adam. So that sons of God just means men. And daughter, am I saying that right? Sons of God means men. Sorry, I get tongue-tied on these. Daughters of men just means women. So for Salehammer, he would just say this, look, This concludes the genealogy. It doesn't start a new section. And this is just saying that men and women were marrying each other and having children as God had told them to do. Remember, to reproduce, multiply, and fill the earth. So, Salehammer says there's no negative implication here at all. It's just men marrying women and doing what God told them to do. There's a few problems if you take this understanding that either they're the descendants of Seth marrying the descendants of Cain or that they're just men and women marrying. And these are the problems as I see it. One, this understanding doesn't explain references in the New Testament in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude. And we'll look at these in just a little bit. But there are New Testament allusions to Genesis 6. And this does nothing to answer the question or the allusions. What, What do Peter and Jude understand about this passage? That's one problem. It also doesn't answer how Nephilim are on the earth again in the days of the Exodus, which is mentioned in Numbers 13. The Nephilim are tied to these mighty men and to the sons of God. And so if the Nephilim are in the earth before the flood and the flood wipes all their line out because everything starts new with Noah, then how did the Nephilim come up again? This doesn't answer that question. Also, this doesn't allow Scripture to directly interpret this phrase. And we'll see in a little bit. The only other place in the Bible where this phrase, the sons of God, is used in the Old Testament is in Job, three places in Job, in which it's identified specifically who the sons of God are. So these are the problems 
with seeing the sons of God and the daughters of men as uh, Seth's and Cain's descendants or as just men and women marrying as God told them to. The other option here is that these are angels. The sons of God are angels and the daughters of men are, are female humans. If this is the case, then the sons of God are actually fallen angels and they've taken on human form. And this sounds a little strange, I I grant you, but you do see angels taking on human form, of course, later in this same book of Genesis when you read the narratives about God coming with angels to Abraham to tell him what he will do. Angels sit down with Abraham and enjoy a meal. They have a physical body, they eat physical food, they have a physical form. So this isn't certainly out of bounds as far as that goes. We see this happening later in the book of Genesis. This understanding allows Job, the use of the phrase used in Job, same phrase, to interpret the meaning in Genesis 6. So just as an example, in Job 1 verse 6, it says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. You see the same use in chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 38, verse 7. In this case, the sons of God are clearly identified as angels, as spiritual beings who have the ability to interact with God in heaven. They have access to God in heaven. And it identifies them by the phrase, the sons of God. So, we understand this as fallen angels, we say, well, Job, which is a book that was probably written close to the same time as the Pentateuch, the use in Job is clearly identified, it would seem uh, not a stretch to let that identify the use in Genesis 6. Also, seeing the sons of God as fallen angels, this was the Jewish understanding. If you read the Old Testament period written Uh, commentaries on this passage, the Jewish understanding was that the sons of God were fallen angels. So this would be consistent with the earliest interpretations. This also would allow for angels to again marry women after the flood to explain the presence of the Nephilim again when Israel comes into the land during the period of the Exodus. So when you read in Numbers 13 and it says the Nephilim were in the earth again in those days, the descendants of Anak, they were giants. Um, By the way, if you have King James, your translation might say giants. Uh, That's an interpretation. if If your version says Nephilim, it's a transliteration of the Hebrew. And it's because there's some uncertainty as far as how to translate it. Giants is an interpretation. But in part, it's because in Numbers 13, the sons of Anak are related to the Philistine giant. So uh, Goliath is understood to be a descendant of Anak. He's a giant. And so the interpreters, going back to Genesis 6, chose to use the term giant. That's not actually the term that's used. But this would make sense if angels, again, after the flood, the Nephilim are wiped out in the flood. All the physical descendants on the earth are from Noah. But if these were angels, they, were, they would again be free to come in and do the same thing they'd done before, which would explain why Nephilim were on the earth again after the flood. Also, and this is a little bit of a stretch, this goes outside the, the Bible study per se, but also think of this. Um, around the world, when you look at mythology and world religions, most have stories that talk about the gods having sex with women 
and producing descendants. Do you know what I'm... Greek mythology, Roman mythology, and it doesn't end there. It's Middle Eastern, it's Far Eastern, it's Norse, you name it. You know, if you read uh, ancient Eastern stories, and I'm going to forget the other flood narrative, uh, the world has stories that resemble the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Most critics say the Bible copied pagan religious stories. The other way, though, of seeing this would be to say, no, if the Bible's record is true, then all the descendants from Noah after the flood shared the same history. And as they disseminated around the earth after the flood, that common story got distorted, which, is, which as you know, as you reproduce something verbally over time, that's what happens. The stories get distorted. If this is the case, this would make sense of mythology and world religions around the world, that most of which have a story or a series of stories about gods having sex with women and producing, for instance, in the Greek mythology, the Titans. And who are the Titans? They're these strong, powerful semi-divine people who basically rule the world. Well, this would provide an answer to that. This would explain why we have a very common mythology about gods or spiritual beings having sex with females on the earth and producing this distinct line of descendants. The problems with seeing the sons of God as fallen angels, uh, the common one, the most common one, is cited Jesus' commentary in Matthew twenty-two thirty. And Mark 12, 25, if you remember the context of these, uh, the Sadducees are, are telling Jesus a ridiculous story to say there's no resurrection. And so Jesus says, you don't understand the way things are. And part of your lack of understanding is, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus says, angels in heaven don't marry. And he says this in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. My problem with this as far as... Uh, restricting the use in Genesis 6 is Jesus is making a general statement about resurrection life. And he's saying angels in heaven don't marry. Genesis 6 isn't necessarily talking about angels in heaven. It's talking about fallen angels. So, and Jesus is making a general statement about resurrection. He's not necessarily saying what angels did or didn't do in the days of Noah. So from my perspective, this is a very weak argument indeed. At the end of the day, and I'll rehearse why here, it seems to me that fallen angels are the most consistent understanding of the use sons of God in this passage. It allows the term to be identified by other scripture in Job. It allows for similar interaction after the flood to produce again this group called Nephilim, these mighty men, these, these people with unusual strength or power. It also makes sense of 2 Peter 2 verses 4 and 5 and Jude 6 and 7. I'm going to read those for you here. 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5, and this is a passage about judgment. And Peter says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, whom he brought, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, goes on to say, Then God knows how to rescue the righteous and judge the ungodly. But think of the elements here. Some angels sinned in a way that was distinct from other fallen angels. Because as you know, when you read the Gospels and the rest of the Scriptures, all angels are not in prison. 
because there are angels that we call demons in the New Testament that are free to roam the earth today. But there's some class of angels that are already under judgment, but not all. They've done something unique. And the sin and the judgment of angels in 2 Peter 2 is tied to the days of Noah. Okay, so here's two, two things out of 2 Peter that seem to say those sons of God in Genesis 6 are fallen angels. You see more of the same in Jude, verses 6 and 7. Angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude adds a couple components or aspects in this comparison. He says that the unique sin of the angels is that they left the sphere or the realm God had appointed for them. They left the sphere God set them in. And he also says that their sin, like the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, involved gross immorality. Gross immorality is sexual immorality. This immediately raises the question, how can a spirit being be guilty of sexual immorality? You'd say, well, they can't. Sex is physical. So again, Jude seems to be saying the same thing and saying the angels that are suffering this unique early punishment being locked up are doing so because they had a unique sin. They left the sphere God appointed for them and were corrupted in what Jude calls gross immorality. Also, the term Nephilim itself, the reason if your Bible says Nephilim, it's transliterated is because we're not sure exactly what to do with the word. If, if your Bible says giant, it's an interpretation. It's not actually the word itself. Nephilim, the term, is thought to come from the Hebrew nafal, which means to fall or fallen ones. So you can see again going back to if the sons of God are fallen angels, the Hebrews identified them as fallen ones. Those who fell from the place they were given or those who were heavenly creatures and now they're earthly creatures. This would make sense of the Hebrew word uh, root nafal. Also, in Salehammer's understanding, this verses 1 through 4 are just describing life on the earth but not necessarily in a negative way. But when it talks about the mighty men or the strong men who come from the Nephilim, men with a name, we think of uh, being famous today generally as a good thing, but you know, you can also be infamous. And that's really probably the usage we we should see here in Genesis 6. In Genesis 10, Nimrod is also called a mighty one, this strong one or a strong hunter before the Lord. And if you read that and you don't understand the implication from the Hebrew mindset, it sounds like he's, he's a mighty hunter before God. He, he was probably a good guy. The problem, though, is Nimrod is a descendant of Ham and Canaan. Nimrod is part of the cursed line of Noah. And Nimrod founds the city, which throughout the rest of the Bible is seen as the epitome or the center of evil. Nimrod founds the city of Babel, later called Babylon. So when it talks about the Nephilim and the mighty men, later on, this is understood to be a very negative thing, a very negative person from a very negative line. This would also make sense understanding Genesis 6 as the fallen angels. 
And lastly, and again, this is just a thought, Satan was in the garden, you remember, with Adam and Eve and brought about through the temptation the fall. We assume Satan also knows that God promised Eve that one of her descendants would be a savior and he would crush Satan. God would introduce into the line of Eve a savior figure. I wouldn't find it incredible then if Satan tried to, in a sense, do the same thing. You remember, Satan, no one's ultimately original besides God. And Satan's very good at what he does, but he's not original. It's mimicry, it's copycat, it's substitution, etc. So I wouldn't find it incredible at all if Satan said, God's plan is to introduce into the human line a Savior who's going to crush me. So I, in turn, will introduce my own fallen line to take over the world instead. This would seem to be consistent as well. So best guess, whatever you guys do with this, uh, you've got to make some sense of these terms. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? And what does this all have to do with? It seems to me fallen angels coming down on earth answers the context, it answers the wider context of the Old Testament and the New Testament, makes the best sense I can of this passage. The other question, the last question in these first four verses to answer is, when God says in verse 3, His days shall be 120 years, what does that mean? Two options. The first this. In the genealogies preceding, people are living about 1,000 years. You remember 700, 800, 900 years plus, this is the norm. So maybe when God says, His days shall be 120 years, He's saying... I'm going to shorten man's lifespan. Men won't live a thousand years anymore. They'll live about a hundred or or 120 years. And so you guys know as you look at the genealogies after the flood, those lifespans shorten dramatically. And lo and behold, when Moses dies at the end of the Pentateuch, this first five book series of the Bible, how old's Moses when he dies? He's 120 years old. So that makes sense. Another understanding, the one I prefer, is actually that God is saying from the time he makes this declaration about the condition of the earth to the time of the flood will be 120 years. That is, man's got 120 years on the earth until I clean the slate and start over. If this is the case, then the 120 years is the period of time in which Noah is building the ark. This does make sense out of 1 Peter 3.20 when Peter says of men who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Peter looks back and says God was patient while Noah was building the ark. And that would appear to be this 120-year period. Man's lifespan does decrease after the flood. And so we couldn't say for sure that it doesn't mean God's saying their lifespan is going to be shortened. But it appears from Peter in the New Testament this is probably meant to be understood as the time period between God's statement of judgment and the day in which the flood comes. So, uh, that's our best guess on the first, that's my best guess on the first four verses. You guys can look and make of it what you will. There's uncertainty, there's ambiguity on the front end of these first four verses. There is none on the rest of this passage. So, starting at verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does this sound harsh to you? 
or judgmental. I confess, when I read this, it's, it's hard for me to buy into. If I look at the world today, I know we're not what we should be. Us in this room, the world, Christians, non-Christians, etc. God looked at the time in Noah's day and said, He concluded the intent of the hearts of men were only evil continually. He kind of qualifies it, qualifies it, qualifies it to basically say the whole thing was a train wreck. God's assessment. It's, it's hard for me uh, to hear. It's hard for me to grasp or to take in. But that's God's assessment. He says the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent was evil. This phrase, when it says God saw... And you know the Bible uses repetition many times to draw either parallels or comparisons. God saw something and He said it was evil. Does this sound familiar? If you go back to Genesis 1, 31, at the end of the creation, do you remember? There's a similar phrase. God saw something. And in Genesis 1, 31, God saw all that He made and behold, it was very good. God saw all that He made and behold, it was very good. You get to Genesis 6 and it says, God saw all that man made, all that man had made of himself, and it was only evil continually. Bruce Waltke says, God looked out over the world he had made and it was good. God saw all that man had made and it was evil. It continues, God's assessment continues at verses 11 and 12. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. By the way, this term of the use of violence, the Hebrew is Hamas here, which I found interesting. I don't know if the uh, terrorist group chose it for that reason, but Hamas, the Hebrew, means violence. The earth was filled with violence. You know the earth today is filled with violence. That helps me put some perspective on the world in Noah's day that when I see the terrible violence around us today, that gives me a little bit of a lens to look back and say, well, that's part of what God was talking about, violence. But verse 11, the earth was corrupt, filled with violence. Verse 12 the earth was corrupt, all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And you guys know, biblically, when you repeat a thing, you're emphasizing the validity or the truth of it. Three times here, God says in two verses, the earth was corrupt. It was rotten. It was bad. It was evil. From God's perspective, the earth and man on the earth made in His image were good no longer. And the image of God in man was distorted or perverted or cracked or broken. Man was made in God's image. He took the good earth God gave them and then he turned everything to evil. That's God's assessment. And then God says this, and this is for me, when you leave this morning, whatever else you hear or don't hear, hear verse 6 and 7 The Lord was sorry He made man on the earth. God was grieved in His heart. Verse 7, I am sorry that I have made them. Three times, two different Hebrew words, God says, I am sorry or I was grieved. If you have King James again, it probably says God repented. When the Bible says God repented, uh, two things. Sometimes it's not the best choice of English words for Hebrew words, sometimes. Uh, The other thing, though, is It does not mean that God gained new information and regretted a decision or an action He had made earlier. God's immutable. God doesn't change. God knows all things. He doesn't grow in knowledge. 
So this does not mean that God gained new information, that man's behavior surprised God, and then he changed his mind about having made man in the beginning. But it does mean, and this is what floors me, it does mean that God really, truly experienced emotional grief, sadness, and pain over the condition of man and the earth. And this is what I find difficult to get my mind around. I mean, just think of this for a minute. The omnipotent God, the omnipotent eternal God who spoke the earth into existence can be caused emotional pain, grief, and sadness by creatures of dust and clay like you and me. If I was God, and I'm not, if I was God, I wouldn't create creatures who could cause me pain or grief. You know, there's a definition, I want to say, of the term vulnerability, which says vulnerability is giving others the tools whereby they can hurt you, the ability to hurt you. And in that sense, God made himself vulnerable to creatures of clay. Remember, Adam's made of dust. God blows his own spirit into the dust and creates a human being made in his image. But God says he's sorry. There's this, saying, uh, there's this sense of pain over the condition of man. And part of, this can sound almost blasphemous if you take this too far. God's not a baby in a corner. He's not an emotional basket case. I don't mean to imply that. You know, and he's wringing his hands. But part of us being made in the image of God is that we are emotional beings. And in that sense, in some very foundational basic sense, our emotional nature reflects God's emotional nature. And some of this goes beyond anthropomorphism, that is giving God human characteristics. God gave man God's characteristics in creation. So to say that God is an emotional creature is not just anthropomorphism. Part of our bearing His image is because God is an emotional being. So God experiences, and you know, if you read the rest of the Bible, God gets angry. Jesus in the New Testament got angry. Jesus weeps when He beholds Lazarus' tomb. God is emotional. Jesus was emotional. Our emotions reflect part of the deity. It's not just that we read back emotion into God. God describes Himself as emotional. And so here God looks over the good creation He made and over man He made in His image and He says when it's all been twisted and corrupted and fractured and break and broken, He looks back and says, I am sorry. I have grief in my heart over what has become of the people I made and the earth I made. This is, uh, this is heady stuff. This is mind-boggling stuff for me. God created paradise and He put an innocent man and woman in it. And now innocence is gone and paradise is lost and the earth is filled with evil and death. And God's response is, I suffer grief over the way things have gone, over the state of man and over the state of the world. Sin and death bring God grief. Sin and death bring God grief. 
Our being less than God meant us to be brings God grief. Our being other than God created us to be brings God grief or the sorrow or the sadness reflected here in Genesis 6. Now think about this on the application end, and we're winding down here. On the application end, it's possible to grieve God. And you've got Paul in Ephesians 4.30 saying, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, The Spirit of God that hovered over the surface of the deep in Genesis 1 lives in you if you're a Christian. Remember, Jesus said the Spirit's been with you, but after the resurrection, He'll be in you. And Ephesians talks a lot about the Spirit, and the Spirit is God's stamp on us and in us that we're His possession. We belong to Him and that He'll fully redeem us in the future. And Paul says, in light of the Spirit of God being in us as Christians, as those who are in relationship with God now through Christ, Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. This says that you and I today, no less than the men and women in the days of Noah, can grieve God. We can grieve God. By the way, that also means something else, doesn't it? If we can grieve God, what else can we do? We can also give God pleasure and joy. And if you're a parent, you know this is true towards your children. If you're a sibling or if you're a friend, you know this is true to the people you're in relationship with. The people that you know most closely and most intimately are the people who can hurt you most deeply or the people who can bless you most fully. And that's what you see in this relationship here with God. You and I today have the ability to grieve the omnipotent creator of the universe. And we have the ability to bless or to bring joy or pleasure to the omnipotent creator of the universe. And this is what I say. When I read this passage... I'm kind of aghast at this. I'm aghast at God being vulnerable. Omnipotent God's got all power, can do all things, who makes himself vulnerable to creatures like you and me. What was he thinking? That's what he's done. We can grieve God. We can bring God joy. This thought about the condition of the earth in the days of Noah, you know, if you read corrupt, 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 evil, 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 all the time, you might look at your life and mine or the world around us today and say, we're not that bad. We're not that bad. But you know what the truth is? We are that bad. We've been that bad and we will be that bad. When Jesus talks about the coming, his return to the earth, he compares it to the days of Noah. And listen to this. He says in Matthew 24, 37 and 38, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Luke 17, 26 to 27 say the same thing. Jesus says, when I come back to the earth, it will look just like it did in the days of Noah. Notice what he does not say here when he compares it to the days of Noah. He doesn't say gross immorality. He doesn't say violence. He doesn't say wickedness. What does he say? He says they're eating and drinking. Anything wrong with eating and drinking? He says they're marrying and giving in marriage. Anything wrong with getting married, Jonathan? Good thing. It's a good thing. What's the implication? The implication Jesus says in Matthew 24 and Luke 17 is 
They're living life as if God doesn't exist. Life goes on. Life's okay. Life's pretty good. I've got it pretty good. And who's God anyway? I live as if God doesn't exist. The world Jesus describes, guys, it's the world you and I live in today. In fact, frankly, I think it describes the way many Christians live most of our lives. We're saved, we're blessed, we're good to go, and we live life as if God doesn't exist. Thank you, Lord, I'll live the rest of my life. Save me at the end and I'm good to go. It doesn't say gross immorality. We live today, you and I live, the world lives just as it was in the days of Noah. And this will be true until the return of Christ to the earth. God looked over the situation and said, it's so bad, I'm going to wash it all the way. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week. I'm going to blot it all out. It'll be as if it was never here. It's so bad. I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the earth, for I am sorry that I made them. When you leave today or when you're thinking about this passage this week, think of this. You and I have the ability to bring pleasure or grief to God. When we reflect the old fallen life that God judged in the days of Noah, or more fully, that God judged in Jesus Christ on the cross, same thing, same thought, judging evil. When we display that old fallen life, we grieve, we bring grief or sadness to God. So when we disobey God, when we live like the world around us that doesn't know God, when we refuse to care for those around us, when we're characterized by violence or, or even indifference to the needs of those around us, we bring grief or sorrow or sadness to the omnipotent creator of the universe. The flip side, when we reflect the image of God, and, and this is the part I love, created in the image of God originally, that image restored post-resurrection by creatures who now again are recreated in the image of God, and now we're to grow up in all ways to reflect fully the nature of God demonstrated or seen fully in the person of Christ. So the more fully you and I look like Jesus Christ, bear the image of God again, the more fully we bring joy or pleasure to God, our Father. Our Father in creation, better yet, our Father in recreation or in rebirth. So when we obey God, when we walk with God as Enoch did and Abraham did, we bring joy or satisfaction or pleasure to God when we bless and serve others. The more fully we reflect the image of Christ, the more fully we bring joy or pleasure to God. So whatever you get out of this Genesis 6, whoever the Nephilim are, whether they're giants or fallen angels or what, you know you can take this away, that you and I, creatures of clay, created in the image of God, we have the power, we have the ability to bless God or to cause Him grief. And you know, when you see the Lord Jesus at the end of the day that is our life on the earth, when you see God the Father in heaven, which is where everybody knows Christ is going, thanks to the crucifixion and resurrection, you don't want to be somebody whose life is characterized by causing your parent grief. You want your parent to say, well done, good to see you, great job. God loves us unconditionally. He can't add anything to that love, fully provided for in the death and resurrection of Christ. But you have the ability to bring pleasure to your parent or to bring grief to your parent. That's what you can 
give God. That's um, you increase, if you will, God's pleasure or joy. This is no small thing. I mean, this is mind-blowing that you and I can give God anything. You can. You can give God joy or pleasure. Let's pray. Father, that you would uh, make creatures of dust like us uh, in your image is wild. That you would then give us the ability to give you grief is uh, um, almost beyond comprehension. And, and Lord, then that you became one of us to bring about redemption is just all, almost too much to take in. Lord, help us to be those who see your commitment and your love to us in Christ and in redemption and grasp that fully enough to make it our aim to give you pleasure instead of sorrow. Make it our aim, Lord, to give you cause to celebrate and rejoice rather than to cause you grief and sorrow again. Father, thanks that the day is coming when we will be fully what we are meant to be, sons and daughters of God, fully representing your image in heaven, redeemed bodies with you forever. Lord, help us to live as creatures today, as heavenly creatures with a brief time on the earth whose end and whose destiny is to rule and reign with you forever. Lord, we love you and we want to commit our hearts, our wills, our minds to you and your use. In Jesus' name, amen.